Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Sarah Jane McQuala King. Sarah Jane is an award winning radio presenter, best selling author, journalist, and public speaker whose career spans two decades and four continents. She has an LLB honors degree from the University of Greenwich and a master's in journalism from Canterbury University. Her first book, Killing Caroline, published in 2017, was shortlisted for the University of Johannesburg Debut Prize for South African Writing. Her second book, Mad Bad Love, was published this year and talks about the period in her life where Sarah Jane had just discovered she was going to become a mother. Six weeks after discovering she was pregnant, her partner Enver relapses on heroin and disappears. Sarah Jane checks herself into the clinic and realizes she must save herself to save her future child and that part of this journey must be tackling why she's always looking for love in all the wrong places. Both of her books deal with issues around race, identity, adoption, addiction, recovery, and mental health. Mad Bad Love is currently number one across many bookstores in the country. Sarah Jane's daughter is turning three this November. They live in Cape Town where she hosts her own weekend breakfast show on Cape Talk Radio. So today I'll be talking with Sarah Jane about parenting herself and her child, as well as addiction, adoption, and of course, feminism. Welcome Sarah Jane. Thanks, Jen. Lovely to be with you. It's so nice to have you here. Let's start with this amazing bestseller of a memoir, Mad Bad Love. It's your second bestselling book, and it's an extremely personal one. What made you want to write about this particularly tough time in your life? I didn't, but if anybody knows my publisher, Melinda Ferguson, they'll know that I didn't have a great deal of choice in what I wrote. No, that's not true. I must stop saying that because people take it really seriously. The truth is, is that I always knew when I finished Killing Caroline that I had another book. Um, that was it. First of all, Killing Caroline was quite a short book, but it was very focused on sort of the life story, you know, the history. Um, and there was it's it's a snapshot. It's a snapshot of of my life, and there was so much more that I wanted to that I wanted to tell. And I wasn't quite sure. I thought it would focus a second book would focus more on sort of mental health stuff and. Um, my trips in and out of psychiatric clinics over the years. Um, and although that does form a part of Mad Bad Love, the real essence of the story that Melinda, which is her genius, realised way before me was my relationship um, with with Enver, with my daughter's father, and and why that relationship was why it was, and hence hence the Mad Bad Love. And it really, although it's... Although Enver features in the book, um, it really is a book about self-exploration, self-going back and looking at self, looking at why we are the way we are. There was a book that somebody lent me, my therapist lent me actually, halfway through writing, and it's called What Happened to You? And it's by um, Bruce Parry and, and Oprah Winfrey is involved in it as well. And and that could have been the title of this book. It's, it's about looking at why why we are the way we are, why we do the things that we do as adults. And essentially, it's all about going back and processing. I suppose another thing would be to say that it's about unprocessed 
stuff, whether you call that stuff trauma or life events or life experiences. Um, yeah, so so the idea behind it, really, I needed quite a firm nudge from Melinda because the difference, again, between Killing Caroline and Mad Bad Love is that the story of Killing Caroline I'd been telling since I was, you know, four years old. It was, you know, I was born in South Africa and then this happened and that happened. Whereas the stuff that happened in Mad Bad Love is very, very recent, m- most of it. Um, outside of the sort of retrospective digging stuff that I do in the book, um, the events that I speak to were quite recent and some of which were still going on when I started the writing process. And that was hard. That was really hard. Yeah, I can imagine so. And one thing about um, getting pregnant is that it catapults you into the future because you can't stop thinking about things, what things were like when they're here or when they're one or two or three or 25. Yeah. What yeah. were your first thoughts when you fell pregnant and what type of mum did you want to be? I was absolutely delighted. I It was I, it was what I wanted. You know, we we woke up one Saturday morning and said, we're not getting any younger, let's have a baby. And by the Sunday morning, I was pregnant. Um, and so I was absolutely, I was in the, I'd gone to do, um, was it Wurtfies or some book festival? And I, to talk about killing Caroline, and I had a pregnancy test in my bag. And Enver had said to me, had been saying to me, you're pregnant, you're pregnant. And I was thinking, no, I thought, you know, I've done so much to my body over the years. There's no way it's going to have been that easy. And then I ended up doing the pregnancy test in the in the toilet of this theatre that I was doing this book festival and it pregnant. And I was just I remember that moment. It was like it was just the best moment of my life. Um, and yeah, what sort of mum did I think I would be? Well, better than any other mother that had lived on the planet, obviously. <laughs> um, no, that's a joke. Um, I I present is what I thought I would be present, present. And I think. And I wonder if a lot of um, people share the same thought, I don't know, that I did, is that it wasn't, I wanted to do it better than my parents had done it. And not in a, I've done it better, but just in a, I don't want my child to feel what I felt growing up type thing. Um, You know, it's that typical saying, isn't it? I was a great parent until I had kids, but I wanted to be present. I think present was... I want, yeah, present, however one wants to take that. Yeah, I mean, the, the children do make you present in a way because they demand, they are so present in their interactions with the world and they demand your attention a lot of the time. And yeah. being a mother to a girl must have also made you think about the way, you know, the unprocessed stuff, the example that you're setting for her and the way that the world was going to interact with her as a girl. How has feminism shaped your parenting journey and how has parenting your parenting journey shaped your feminism? You know, what's interesting is that when I found out I was having a daughter and by that point, so that was, I was 12 weeks pregnant and it was about three days after I had discovered that Enver was using heroin still. And I remember lying on that bed and having the scan and and my doctor saying, it's going to be a girl. And the relief, the absolute sheer relief that flooded through me because I thought, and, and so many people seem to not have understood 
this when I tell them, which I think is really strange. And they go, oh, God, were you really nervous? Because, you know, bringing a, a girl child into the world and particularly in a South African context and GBV and rape statistics and all of that. And I said, no, no, I it was a known quantity. I've been a black girl growing up, so I get that. What what terrified me was raising a fatherless black boy in South Africa. Because by that, I didn't know what Enver was, you know, as far as I knew, Enver was going to be missing in action. That was it. He he was using heroin. So the the thought of having, a, raising a girl child, although, listen, I was still terrified because I was doing it on my own. <clears throat> well, that was what I perceived was going to be the situation. Um, there was a comfort in knowing that I was raising what I know, if if that makes any sense. Whereas, you know, and, and also you mess up a boy, you mess up society. You you know, but but whereas I just felt slightly more comforted by the fact of, I don't know, I, I just always had this this idea in my mind of being able to relate to a girl because I was one once if that makes any sense at all so there wasn't I, there was absolutely no like feminist theory that went into my parenting mm -hmm. at all it was just really base stuff around um boy child versus girl child and and my belief in my capabilities as a parent at that moment of that 12-week scan which were pretty much minus one I was just absolutely terrified I this bombshell had happened in my life where suddenly single parenthood was was my lot and I was completely overwhelmed, completely terrified and the only silver lining was that now I didn't have to raise a boy. Wow, I mean, I think that so much of what you've said is so true. I think we also, we didn't know what we we're having until we had a baby. And so your thoughts during the process are, how are you going to relate to this child? How are you going to connect? And I can totally understand what you're saying about a known quantity, you know, having been through stuff yourself and thinking, okay, I can help with guiding in that process. And, and having a boy is a bit of a mystery, I must say, you think, how how am I going to do this in a way that I think you probably don't if you're having a girl? Um, but Mad Bad Love is also about reparenting yourself so that you can be a better and more whole parent. And parenting is so much about love and also learning to love and forgive yourself for your faults and your failings. Or at least that's what I keep telling myself. <laughs> so yeah, how do yeah. you think that um, the values of women's empowerment or feminism can help us be kinder to ourselves as parents? There's a part in the book where I write about, um, wish I hadn't in front of me, but but it's it's the moment that I sort of realise I'm I'm alone in this, and and people kept saying to me, you have to be strong for the baby. You, it's just you and her now. You have to just you know, and all these things, and and what I realised that is that. In pregnancy, very often there's an erasure of the mother. The mother no longer seeks to exist as a, you know, as an entity. The mother is simply just, I can't remember the term that I use in the book, but I thought it was very clever at the time. Um, but it's essentially just the carrier for, for the child. And 
part of you know and I, and I write that I suddenly have this realization that we are as women are pregnant often erased first of all erased during pregnancy and that we are no, no, no nobody cares about us anymore um it's all about the baby uh and also that there is people kept saying you'll you'll be that was the thing you'll be fine you'll be fine you know that that mother instinct will kick in and and you'll just be fine and I thought and you know what what made me both angry and terrified is because that I realized that the maternal instinct is a load of old nonsense actually to assume that all people who have wombs and vaginas um somehow have this magical maternal instinct that that erases childhood trauma that erases um you know the the impact of relationship breakdown that just takes over is actual nonsense um and I asked the question, and you know, for years people have been asking the question, how do they do it? How do they do it when talking about, you know, mothers and single mothers? Because we've got no choice. That's how we do it. It's not some, you know, it's it, it, there's not some miracle. It's not some something that we're born with that allows us to do it over any other human being on the planet. Um, it's that circumstances are not kind. And so I suppose for me... Um, and, and I've really only done this since my daughter was born. I didn't do it at all. You know, I was completely disengaged throughout my whole pregnancy, really. But to follow people on social media, to read books by people who reinforce or, or yeah, who, who reinforce a thing that says you don't have to be perfect at this and none of us are. To, to reinforce that feeling of if you feel like you're not going to cope, you've got the agency. We, we believe you and therefore we're going to offer you support in that. We're not just going to turn around and say, oh, you're, by virtue of the fact of your vagina and your womb, you'll be all right. And so for me, that has been really important. And it still doesn't because of because we live in such a patriarchal society still that that mess the the opposite message is overriding, right? In that I still don't really, I have to really dig deep when I see these comments from people who I admire that say, you know, really the doing your best at this point is is great. You don't have to be, you know, chopping eight avocados and dredging them in lime juice for your daughter's snack box every day. All of that kind of stuff. I, I still have to kind of go, no, really, you can believe that rather than the counter message, which now also is often shrouded in like faux feminism, but it's just nonsense. Um, the kind of, you know, the, the maternal instinct thing. So it's this constant battle between listening to the voice that I've only ever heard and, and the patriarchy and all that nonsense, and then seek actively seeking out voices that actually compliment support and encourage my my situation does that make any sense at all yes I mean I think so much of what feminism can push back against is this narrative of like the super mom and the perfect mom because it does allow us a bit more grace and and I think what you're saying is so true because so much of there is this faux feminism of what being a good mom is, which requires a huge amount of domestic labor. And it's only really possible to be that perfect good mom if you don't have a job or if you have nothing else to do except for care for your child. Um, I'm so you, I do think, this, sorry, no, go on. Yeah. No, I think you're 100% right on, on that. I am. Um, this is 
taking absolutely nothing away from from um, from mums who who don't have like formal employment in terms of you know working mm. for a, an employer. But I, I often sit and I think, and I and I'm I'm in a lot of mums groups, and some of which I need to remove myself from because they're triggering. But our experiences as mothers are so different. They are so mm. different. Um, you you simply can't compare my situation to, for example, you know, friends of mine who have um, two solid income earners, uh, child support, nanny, and an extended family. That situation is not comparable to mine. And that's not to say that those people don't have their own stresses absolutely it really isn't to say that but they're not comparable um you know i am i earn considerably more than my child's father right and he's a great father but but i the, the money stuff comes down to me the pressure of that is extraordinary it's really really you know that's something that I, I sometimes say, sure, you know, I'd love to just ha have that that pressure removed from me because the, so there's that. And then there's all the other stuff. I saw a meme, it wasn't really a meme, it was like a, some post on Instagram about as the, as a default parent it was talking about. And this, again, this is to take nothing away from, from Enver who, you know, is, is a great, is a great parent. But you, something happened, you know, he, he, when our daughter was initially born, he was still in active heroin addiction. So his, he simply wasn't present. He wasn't available. So I became the default parent. And this, this picture, this image showed the number of decisions a day that the default parent has to make. And it's, it's just beyond. And sometimes you're doing it, you don't even know, but it's like minute by minute. There are decisions that you have to make to make sure that, you know, at the end of the day, everyone's been fed, watered, clothed, you know, um, vaccinated or whatever it might be. Um, and then you can, you know, put your head down for your five hours rest and then it kind of all starts again. Um, I don't even think I think I'm just waffling now. I don't even know if you have. No, I think that's the deeper. No, I think the default parent is such a, a useful frame of reference because it means that you are re re responsible for the mental mathematics of parenting as well yeah. as doing the actual parenting, which is a huge amount of of labor and work. Um, regardless of whether you're a parent with a, with a job or without a job, the the default parent does a shit ton more work than the backup yeah. parent. And it's yeah, so hard yeah. to shift shift that the mother is always the default parent. It's really hard to push back against that. Yeah. Um, it and really try and is. get a more of an equilibrium. Yeah. Yeah. When we spoke um at Franschuk Literary Festival this year, we were talking about the way that parenthood sort of blindsides you with the practicality, stuff like you can't just pop into the petrol station to get some yeah. milk if you want to. And <laughs> um, what has been the most surprising thing about motherhood for you? Um, the anxiety, um, and, 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 you know, again, I don't know whether I'm a very anxious parent. Um, and I don't know whether that was, I suspect that was exacerbated because of what was going on during, 
not only my pregnancy, but my daughter's sort of first few months where, again, you know, her father was in active addiction, was constantly trying to come clean and, and just couldn't, couldn't stay clean. Um, and, you know, being in a space where you are a new first time mom um, with a marauding heroin addict in and out. Of the, I mean, it was it was chaos, Jen. It was absolute chaos. And um, so I imagine that that probably has contributed an awful lot to um, to the anxiety. But I write about this in the book. There was a moment everyone always says and of course it's such an obvious thing they say you know the minute you they hand you your baby and you've never known love like it I mean yeah sure you know okay um but what people don't seem to tell you is that oh certainly this was my experience the abject terror of of that of that love not even the love it's beyond love it's it's maybe it's responsibility I'm not sure but there was a moment where um my daughter was lying in her bassinet on the floor I'd gone I don't know I'd gone to the bathroom or something and my my best friend had come over from the states um I think my daughter was maybe like four days old and he was sitting in the living room my daughter was on the floor in her bassinet I went to the bathroom came back and I looked down and you know this like (laughs) newborn babies can do a thing where they just look so still like they're just not moving and I looked and I she just wasn't moving and my instant thought was she's dead that was my that that just and I dropped to my knees and I shoved her I mean she was this tiny little thing which wasn't that tiny Uh, but I shoved her and and in that moment it was it happened in a split second the thought from she's dead to and I promise you it happened in a split second to okay so she's dead so that means that I'll have to kill myself how will I do it I'll get a gun I'll go to Weinberg Main Road I'll find some guy and I'll buy a gun and I'll blow my brains out that happened in a split second I shoved her and of course she kind of blinked at me and that was that that I haven't ever really got over that moment I mean it's it's lessened now but it was it was such a significant moment for me as a mother in that it was like there's now suddenly something that is I mean, yes, of course, love, but it's beyond that. It's it's something else. And and so the fear, the fear has surprised me. The fear, the anxiety. I still catastrophize a lot. I have I have and I, I struggled with it a lot in the early days. And then more recently, it's kind of crept up again. And I'm sure there's a couple of reasons why that would be but I have I kind of go into catastrophizing fantasy about awful things happening to her um and I have to kind of talk myself down off that um it's a very strange thing and and apparently quite common so I you know again it's one of those things that I don't allow myself to sort of beat myself up about it is just what it is but I think also because I had my my daughter at quite a a later age I was 39 when I had my daughter um and so for 39 years or you know my my the majority of my adult life I hadn't really had to consider anybody else in that way I mean yes I had I'd had to consider partners but I hadn't had to consider people who were dependent on me and so that has been a real um a real eye-opener and I, I did an interview about a book, the book the other day and, and I described it as an act of self-love. And, and I think, again, the, the 
somebody said to me when I was pregnant with my daughter, I'm not going to say who it was, but somebody said to me, I was very early in the pregnancy and she said to me, it'll be the best thing you ever do. And I was in a really bad space at the time and I don't particularly like this person either. And so I said, well, I fucking hope not. And I sort of still mean that in that I have been surprised by how much other people expect you to now define yourself solely, primarily as the mother. Because people don't do that to men. They don't, you know, father often comes second, right? Or maybe third, fourth, fifth um, to to like the roles that we ascribe to men. When we look at a, a man and the way they move through, through life, how do we identify them? And pr- normally it's around their job. Uh, then it might be you know, whatever it might be. But very rarely is it father first. But mother, that's always the thing. And I... I wasn't, I spoke about the erasure of, of, of being a, a pregnant person. There's also the erasure of you as a, um, as an individual outside motherhood. Um, and I've really struggled with that. Motherhood was never some, I was never, I never had that maternal instinct that I don't believe in. And although I got to, you know, 38 and decided that I wanted to have a, have a family, um, it wasn't like I want to be a mum and like you know put on an apron and bake muffins all day. It was like I want I want another element to the life I already have, and I also don't think I realised how much of the life I already had I would have to sacrifice, and that's been difficult. Um, sometimes I, yeah, sometimes I really long for that old life, and then I, of course I feel horribly guilty because what if that's interpreted as I'm being selfish, I don't love my daughter enough. You know, there are times where I just came back from a trip to Joburg, and I, in a way I couldn't wait to get on that plane because I, li- I like to be reminded of, of who I am outside of motherhood, outside of the provider um doing the book was an act of self-love it was like I'm although it was hard and I wrote it in six months and you know with a toddler and and three jobs it was still time that I had to carve out for myself every single day to do something for me even the promotion of the book which you know it 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 can be tiring I, I I I don't resent doing it I you know I'm really lucky to do it but even that, it's time, it's it's a celebration of me. It's got nothing to do with, um, you know, being a partner or a mother or a radio presenter. It's a thing that I, you know, I love writing and I've, I've, I'm this creative being outside of being able to create life in my body. Um, it was really important for me to be able to do that. And, and it sort of signaled a move towards a reclaiming of self. And even saying that out loud, I feel guilty. I feel like people think, what do you mean reclaiming yourself? It's you're a mother now and that's and that's what you wanted. And if you didn't want that, then you shouldn't have had a kid. But I've got to still be allowed to be SJ outside of being mother and outside of being provider. I have to or I'll go mad. I'll turn into Virginia Woolf. She said. I know. I'm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just 
agreeing with you so much listening to what you're saying and i think what people don't understand is how how really difficult it is to reclaim yourself after motherhood i remember thinking at at the i remember thinking oh at the six week check my life will be back to normal i'll be going back to gym i'll be doing my reading and my writing and everything will be the same and i'll be my real self but i'll have a baby and it takes so much longer and it takes concerted effort to be yourself again and to push back against the people who do want to relegate you to only mother um yeah. it's really a task um and it takes community i mean in, in mad by love you write about the community that you developed in addiction recovery support the support group that you went to and how yeah. lovely to your daughter they were and it made me think how much we all need a sort of support group community like that just to be parents and to get through it and to affirm ourselves it also made me very jealous of how well your daughter seemed to sleep <laughs> um, but how yeah. how has That's, community yeah. You, you were very lucky there, I must say. I was so jealous yeah. reading all of the books where she was just sleeping. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In reading, reading about other people's sleep is my masochism at the moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> how has um, being part of that community and community been an important part of your parenting journey? Um, yeah, in the early days, it was hugely. It's not so much now just because, you know, lockdown sort of did a number on us in that the meetings that I was attended then kind of went online. And although it's still there, um, it, it it's different now, you know, and, and I can't, you know, this was, I was going to these meetings when my daughter was, when I say small, I mean, I think she was seven, 10 days old when I first took her to a meeting. Um, it was a lot easier to just kind of, you know, schlep her around then and put her in the, in the sling and put her on the boob and whatnot. But in those early days, sure, it was, um, you I mean, it was, it was, it was brutal, but it was those, those early meetings and, and the the women in those meetings were your, you know, also, and and I don't, I hadn't, I didn't really go into this in in a great deal of detail in the book for a number of reasons, mainly time actually, but my relationship with my mum at the end of my pregnancy and for the first, yeah, first few months of my daughter's life was broken. And I, and that then, so in addition to, uh, you know, Enver not being around, um, I didn't have my mum either. I, I mean, obviously, I didn't have her physically because she lives in England and I didn't have her on the end of the phone. And that just added to that feeling of just total abandonment and being on and being on my own. I didn't have Enver's family. We, you know, that there was a, a whole story there um, that I write about. And and so just having these women who were essentially strangers at first and, and then just became, you know, mothers really to me was just really, really crucial it sort of it saved me in those really early days um and then you know life sort of happens and 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 we moved out of crisis um and lockdown happened and 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 everything sort of moved online um and then and then yeah we we really sort of moved out of crisis and life started happening and I started realizing that I could do this parenting thing but I don't really. Oh, and I and I must also just say, not only they'll kill me if I don't mention it, but no, really, I joined an antenatal group. A friend of mine, I'd gone, I'd gone to England when I was about five months pregnant, and a friend of mine who'd had a child quite recently, I said, "What's your advice?" 
She said, listen, the best thing I can tell you is join an antenatal group. It'll be full of complete wankers, but you need to go. And I thought, okay, so I joined an antenatal group and it was full of complete wankers, but I went. And those complete wankers are now my closest friends. I mean, we don't even, you know, they're family, really. Um, just, you know, 10, 10 women who, all of whom having babies in this, within a sort of month, month, six weeks period. And one of them on the last day of our ant- last antenatal group um, set up a WhatsApp group. And I rolled my eyes and thought, I can't bear it. I hate being added to, well... I must just say kudos to her because that group saved me, that group. And continue, like to this day, before we even started this conversation, I was messaging about something. And we're better now, you know, we're nearly three years down the line. So it's not every single, you know, burp, shit and and vomit that we need to kind of dissect in the group. But um, our kids now have play dates and we're all terribly good friends. But in those early days... When I, you know, I didn't know what I was doing with a baby, had no idea and was on my own. To be able to message somebody at 2.30 in the morning who was also up breastfeeding uh, and in that, you know, no sleep zone was just an absolute, um, was just an absolute godsend. So they've become my village in in a way that family hasn't really. And and my mum and I have, have certainly repaired our relationship considerably, but she lives in England. You know, so that's the the distance thing is is an issue. But I I still yearn for I still yearn for and I think this speaks to my own history around family and belonging. I yearn for that village that is family and that I don't have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're saying about joining an antenatal group is so true at least it has been for me as well and how valuable just people going through the motions at the same time of you is and being able to just reality check each other and also to be there for the ups and the downs and the sleep deprivation and the burps and shits and vomits as you say it's just it is about creating a village of people who truly understand what you're going through and, and how scary it can be and how anxious it can be and how joyful it can be when it's going well as well um yeah. but you're speaking a little bit about your mum and the longing for family and in as you detail in killing caroline and in mad bad love you were adopted as a very young baby and i know from reading your books and following you on social media that you have quite strong feelings about adoption and what it means for both the child and the parents could you tell um me a little bit more about your feelings about adoption and, and what your position on it is yeah um what's my position on adoption um <sighs> the thing with adoption is that for so many years the narrative has had a purpose and the purpose has been has not always or ever really really had the children at the centre. And that's not to say that the adoption industry, because that's what it is, is is just run by, you know, child-hating people. <laughs> but it's that they haven't really taken the time to listen to the experiences of adopted people and therefore interrogate why the current adoption system and industry is so problematic 
And the biggest injury that they've done and continue to do to children is to not acknowledge a trauma of adoption. And it's often incredibly well-meaning people, but rather naive and ignorant and, and then also defensive people who are sort of the custodians of the system. And so what really ought to happen is that, because actually adoption is only really needs to happen in 90%, uh, sorry, 10% of cases, 90% of adoptions don't really need to happen. And I'm talking about adoption where, you know, the the legal signing of paper, I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about fostering and I'm not talking about, um, adoption should be a last resort, essentially. Because so, and so often what happens, particularly in transracial adoption and particularly in inter-country adoptions, is the erasure of identity, which is just, I don't think people quite understand the magnitude of that. Because, and why? Well, because the focus is so much on, well, you're doing this great thing. What does it matter if a child is taken from Rwanda and then ends up growing up in, you know, Kensington, South London, and going to a fantastic school? What does, what, what do the traditions of, of, um, and the culture of Rwanda matter because now that child gets to go to school, you know, in a Range Rover four by four every day and, and wears a lovely school uniform. And that's a really, you know, I, I'm, I'm being crass, but I mean, that that is the reality for an awful lot of, um, in an awful lot of cases is, is that the, somehow there is a, a, a belief that the, that there's, there's always a narrative, it seems to be, that the child will be better off right? Drug addicted mother, the kid's going to be better off with those people. Um, mother's already got eight mouths to feed, the kid's going to be better off with people who who don't have kids, you know, eight mouths to feed, or the who, you know, who can afford to. Um, and things like poverty and addiction are not reasons <clears throat> for children not to grow up in their families of origin. And I was at a talk the other night, where I was talking about this and and people were saying, well, what's the alternative? And it's like, well, isn't it obvious? The alternative is family preservation. The alternative is spending all that money that we spend. It's a redistribution of wealth. That's all it is. It's spending all that money that we spend on, um, you know, social workers finding families for babies, which is, you know, or, or children for families, which is actually the way it really adoption sort of really works. Um, and and redistributing that money and people often sort of say oh we want to adopt because we want to help a child well let's interrogate that a little bit further that's that's very rarely is that the reason because if that were true uh the money that you would spend raising that child until you know it was self-sufficient to raise itself at the age of what 18 19 20 21 if you put that money to if you donated that money or redirected that money to the child's family there's absolutely no reason, all resources, support, whatever it might be, why that child couldn't grow up in the family of origin. And I think we we really underestimate the impact of what it means to remove a child from its biological family. And people say, oh, yes, but the mothers want to give them up. Well, again, that's in very, very rare situations. There's an awful lot of duress that happens. There's an awful lot of um, sort of cajoling. There's an awful lot of yes, but you know, um, there's this lovely couple here, and they've got a lovely back garden and and all that kind of stuff. Which, if you are a mother who, as I say, maybe 
um, is a survivor of rape. Maybe you have got eight mouths to feed. Maybe you've got the responsibility of the entire family. Maybe you just, you know, you you just don't think you can cope with um, with a baby, with and, and and you know, with a baby, not with raising a child, with a baby. Babies are only babies for a very small amount of time. Adoption is often used, you know, as a permanent solution to a temporary problem, and that and that's that's an, a, a massive problem with with adoptions. So so the so number one is the failure to recognise the trauma, to recognise the primal wound, um, and then the the redistribution of of resources. Um, essentially to ensure family preservation so these are just a couple of the things that you know um, I like to talk about when it comes to adoption but there's an awful lot and it's really sad but there's an awful lot of pushback you know to some adoptive parents I'm the absolute devil because um, they're so steeped in saviorism and often white saviorism that when somebody like me comes out and, and calls bullshit and says actually no nonsense they get very defensive because the narrative has always been people used to say to my parents all the time what an amazing thing you've done rescuing those kids they didn't rescue us we weren't rescued we didn't need rescuing um we we just we needed you know we needed different things but rescuing wasn't one of them um so yeah I, I do have very strong opinions on adoption and they're often not very popular and it becomes it's quite difficult you know for for me adoption was the worst thing that ever happened to me um and people hear that and go you ungrateful little cow and it's like yeah but that's you 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 have to you have to <laughs> have the intelligence to 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 hear what i'm saying which is that the severance between the severance of the bond between mother and child is we know damaging we know that there's no getting around it we we can't keep saying things like oh but you're so young they were, you're so young you wouldn't remember we know that we know how trauma works we're not you know um and i write about this in the book in that i went to a lecture when i was a couple of years clean um, with this psychotherapist called Paul Sunderland, who's extraordinary, he does he does brilliant work, and he the 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 lecture was about the link between adoption and addiction, and he explained more about that severance of the of the of the bond, um, which we talk about as the primal wound and and the preverbal rejection, the preverbal communication of I'm not good enough, um, and and also the um, the impact, the long-term impact of what that severance does, and it is stored like any trauma. It's stored in the limbic system, and although it can't be remembered, of course, I can't remember being seven weeks old. It can be recalled, um, and and that was really key to me because it explains why, um, or it certainly is a big indicator as to why adopted people are overrepresented in treatment facilities we're overrepresented in jails um, we're overrepresented in terms of suicidal um, suicide statistics um, and and that's not an accident and so adoption's not going anywhere I'm not you know I'm not fool enough to think that adoption's just going to stop because Sarah Jane McQuala think King thinks it ought to but certainly if we are to prevent children and adopted people going through an, an unnecessary trauma um, or additional trauma the trauma is going to happen right the trauma the severance of the of the bond and, and the removal from family of origin that creates trauma that's going to happen but what then imp compounds that is the failure to acknowledge that 
the um, often the erasure of identity, all of that stuff then then makes exacerbates all of that. So if we can remove that stuff so that all we're having to deal with is the trauma of the separation, which can be, you know, there's there's ways we can do that, then we're going to have a lot less adoptees, um, you know, dying by suicide and ending up in treatment centres and needing psychiatric care and getting into mad, bad relationships because... It's all about attachment, essentially. It's all about an, uh, attachment disorders, um, the feeling of, yeah, the feeling of attachment, the desire for belonging, the the clinging to that which was once, which which was taken away. Yeah, I mean, it's as you've described it now. It's just so incredibly complex and so much about that connection and about and. Um, bonding and one of the things that I kept saying to people when I had just had a, had my baby was I can't believe how tethered I am to this creature like that you're just so connected and I can imagine that what you're saying is is backed by evidence about how traumatic that separation must be for for the child and for the parent even if it's something that they do believe that they want to do at the time um so thank you for sharing that that explanation with with us i think it's really really interesting your take on it um it's it's also i can understand what you're saying about the defensiveness because i think whenever you're talking about children <laughs> there's just so much defensiveness you know whether you're talking to people about whether they vaccinate or not or how they raise their kids everybody's got you always think that you're doing it right and you have to believe that otherwise you wouldn't do it at all right <laughs> you'd be too yeah. terrified to do anything if you thought you were doing the wrong thing um so that's another like hard lesson of parenting is that y you are going to sort of stick to your guns because you have to as a matter of survival. I, I guess, but I, I think I think adoption brings a slightly different nuance, which isn't just, oh, like it's just how we're parenting, but it's more about the decision to do the decision. The decision to adopt a child is um, very often inherently selfish. And nobody likes to be so, you know, you know what I mean? Or or for, for a lot of people, if, if it's as a result of infertility, right? So had you not, had you, had you been able to have your own children, you wouldn't have adopted. So ergo, the, the child that you've adopted was your second best option. When you say it like that, it doesn't sound very nice, right? No one wants to be on the end of that. No one wants to be the parent whose kid was the second best option. But sometimes we have to just be real about this. Now, that that can that can be true as can and we love our kid beyond you know people often say you're so bitter and you're so negative and how can you say you know your parents loved you it's got absolutely nothing to do with the love that my parents and my adoptive parents and I have for one another the two they're not mutually exclusive it, it, it can all exist in the same fucked up bubble right but but to not call things what they are to not see the thing that's the problem I wish my adoptive mom would come out and say you're not the kids we wanted <laughs> for her not for me for her to be able to put that out there in the therapy or in the world or somewhere to be able to have that to have her truth as as unpalatable as it might be to be able to say we wanted to have our own biological children. That's okay. It's not a crime. Um, the, 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 the crime, the problem is then when you have, ch when you adopt children and you try to treat them, you know, I think we say in South African law as born unto you, your adopted children are not born unto you. 
Um, and so you need to accommodate for that. It's got nothing to do with love. To love, it, obviously. Most people love their kids. It's nothing to do with that. It's about, you know, if if a child came, if, if you had a child and that child had a medical condition, you wouldn't treat the child as if it didn't have a medical condition, would it? You, you would do what needed to be done to make sure that that chi- child thrived in the best way possible with that medical condition that you you would inform yourself on that medical condition and you would you would get the treatment needed right you wouldn't just go oh well i'll just pretend that they don't the same applies to adoption it's not rocket science i mean it's interesting what you're saying about your mum because i remember at franchuk you also you said to the sort of audience of the panel that we were on who regrets having children and people were very um wary or scared to put up their hands and you know recognize that thing that you were saying earlier that you know you have grief for the life that you've given up to to be a parent for the sacrifice that you've made and it is hard for us there's so much pressure as a parent to want to be a particular way or you know to have to be a particular way and have to love your children unreservedly and have to you know feel feel complete guilt if you do anything for yourself that I think it is difficult for people to be honest about their parenting journeys because of defensiveness or because of being perceived as a terrible parent or a selfish parent or you know yeah. just a human being and so it is it's so complex the way that we talk about our relationship with our children and yeah you know whether they're young or whether they're old it's just it, it is so laden with meaning that doesn't come from reality that comes from social norms and narratives about what it means to be a parent and I think particularly to be a mother um and how much pressure there is to be the the best the very best um and and completely unblemished love for everyone all the time <laughs> yeah just yeah, another exactly. bullshit narrative of womanhood really yeah. Um. One one of the other things that you do to take it away from parenting a little bit is that you're a very popular weekend breakfast show radio host. Um. Tell us a little bit more about the best thing about being on radio, and I wonder what the strangest thing anyone's ever said to you on air is. God. Um. Radio. I've. I've. I love radio. It sort of was my first love when I when I left university after doing my masters. I. My, I got my first job in radio and I'd started there doing work experience. What was the name of that station? I can't remember. God, that's bad. Um, no. Star FM. <laughs> Star FM, 106.6. Um, and I got my, yeah, my first job and, and then and then sort of the, the rest, as they say, is history. And I, I before going to my current show and station I'd been working in TV which wasn't really a great fit much of the same skills but the magic wasn't there for me and then I sort of came back into radio and yeah there's just and also my the slot that I have I love I used to do a late night show which I also loved and now I love weekend because it's a lot more um there's not an agenda in the same way you know if you're doing a breakfast show like in the weekday you've got to make sure that you're you know 90% of the agenda is driven by you know what politicians are doing and I'd done that I'd done that for so long in journalism just you know whereas my content is about people really um, which is what I love it's human interest stuff so that for me is that it allows me, it's quite self-indulgent, really, my breakfast show, I have to say, 
<laughs> and hopefully a few people like it. I'm sure there are people who can't bear it and that's all right. That's what the off switch is for. Um, but I, yeah, I like, I love hearing about people and their stories and um, that is sort of largely the focus of it. The strangest thing someone's ever said to me on air. God, oh my God. I don't know. I tell you what, something weird that happened the other day. And also it's really funny in that um, the, the beauty of radio, I always thought, was that it still comes with a level of anonymity, right? It's not like your face is, you know, on the, t you know, on the TV every day. Um, but very often I'll be in the doctors and I'll sort of say something and, and I'll notice people looking and I think, Oh God, you know, have I got vomit on me or something? You know, like mum, I'm I'm wearing my mum clothing, and then someone will say, "I recognise your voice," and you go, "Oh yeah," and they go, Are you "Sarah Jane, I quite yeah, I am yeah," and that's that's quite nice, um, and also quite weird. Somebody, I'm selling my house. Well, I've sold my house. While my house was on the market, somebody came to view, and you know, out out outside of the that red light in the studio. I'm not walking around thinking Sarah Jane McQuilla King from Cape Talk, right? I'm just like me getting on with whatever. And somebody was coming to view the house. And I noticed that they were kind of really intently looking at like the photos I've got in my house and and just stuff in my house rather than the, <laughs> than the house itself. And then he came outside and he said, um, he sort of leant into me and he said, I know who you are. And I still kind of wasn't clicking. I just thought maybe, I don't know. And then he said, I phoned your radio show and told you I loved you once. And I thought, what is happening here? And it was just a really strange interaction in that you're like, I don't really know how to respond to that. Because first of all, that's a strange thing to phone into a radio station and tell a presenter that you love them. And he said to me, and you were quite taken aback. And I thought, no shit, I was taken aback. I'm pretty taken aback now. Um, yeah, that was quite weird, but generally on, I have to say, I have really, people who listen to my show are really sweet and nice and they often kind of cross over into being the people who read the book. So I feel, it feels often as if we all just sort of know each other. It's quite a chilled, you know, quite a, a quite a chilled relationship, to be honest. Yeah. That is very weird. I would also feel completely taken aback if someone yeah, really was in my house looking at my things and then had some other previous, previously confessed love for me. It's very yeah, weird. It was quite strange. <laughs> Luckily, I sold the house quite soon after that, so I didn't have to have people coming through the house very often. I often and also that he doesn't know where you live now, so that's a relief. No. It's a massive relief and I'm quite you know I mean I don't give my my, my kid isn't on social media I haven't given her name publicly in the book I call her Zora mm. not her real name um you know mm. and, and so there's, but but I I did I did think I think people have an idea of because you're on radio you know you must be like earning a fortune and um living in Bishop's Court and yet they come <laughs> to like this this sort of scummy part of a of an all right suburb and see my tiny little house and they must think oh dear she's not she's not doing that well for herself she needs to sell a few more books shame <laughs> well definitely people should go and buy your book regardless of whether they're worried about your well-being or not because it's just a really good read so let's let's always take the book sales where we can get them yeah. Um, Sarah Jane, I have uh, three last questions that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. And the first is, do you have a book or books that have inspired your feminism? 
God, I wish you'd given me some prep because now my brain is going. <laughs> Don't worry, I can edit all of this. Really <laughs> is that I suddenly th- I cast a glance just now to my bookshelf, and you know what? What the first thing I saw? This is no bullshit. Feminism is edited by Jen. <laughs> I promise you. I promise you. That's the first thing. And then um, who else is on? That's funny though. I've got Caitlin Moran on there. Um, I mean, my friend Pumla, Pumla Dinerapola, who I just, is just, you know, anything she writes and says, I just, um, does it for me. Um, God, that's a, yeah, I probably should have, I probably, yeah. There's an awful, I, I think I those are all great answers. I'll take feminism. Yeah, is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wish I could give you a snapshot of my bookshelf right now. Cause it really, it's just, and it's not, it's not all, they're not all Pumlas, right? Oh, look, there's another one living while feminist edited by Jen Thorpe. Um, there's, they're not all, um, they're not all, it's not all people like you and Pumla. I mean, I'm, it's, even, even like Terry McMillan, right. Who I was obsessed with growing up. Um, and I'm sure people will put her into that awful um, chick lit category. Also, Marion Keys. These are people who, just from a, from a writing perspective, also they are people who uh, um, and the topics they write about. Shame of Fife. I'm just looking across there. She'd be another one. Um, they're just people who write about like actual real pe- real women in like a real way, right? Um, that I just relate to. Yeah. Yeah. I think that so many people, when I ask that question, give fiction books, and I love the ones that you've suggested because it is true. You know, writing, writing normal life is really, really important as well. Yeah. Um, because it gives us a bit more space to have diversity of experiences being important. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure if you're going to enjoy the second to last one either. But do you have a quote or words of wisdom that you live by? Um. This too shall pass in a day at a time, which is really recovery stuff. Um, but my recovery is is like the, the the bedrock of who I am, really. And I just um, celebrated 15 years clean and sober. So, yeah, uh, one day at a time and this too shall pass. Congratulations on that milestone. That's amazing. Thank you. And then the final question I have for you today is, do you have any advice for other parents or other feminists on their journeys? Something that has been really, and I think I mentioned this at the start of our conversation, stop following all those like super mom stuff on social media. Because I started, I did it in ignorance, first of all. I just followed every kind of like mom, da, da, da. And then I just felt like shit because I just wasn't, you know, as I say, cutting an avo into fucking stars every day and sprinkling it with lime juice. Um, For... <laughs> Yeah, just just find things that make you feel... This is such a... Find things that make you feel better, not worse. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Don't follow all that bullshit that makes you feel shit for not doing, you know, what somebody else whose circumstance you know nothing about um, is, you know, yeah, no. Find things that make you feel yeah. better, not worse. <laughs> That's fantastic advice for everyone in life and on social media. Yeah. 
But thank you so much, Sarah Jane, for making the time to chat with me today. I really have enjoyed listening to you and, and taken a lot from what you've said. So thank you very much. Thanks, Jen. This was lovely. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.